Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. I'm Colette Bennett, Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know by now, we have three different types of podcast. Our seminar series is a look back at some of our conference and seminar presentations where you can hear from people like Anne Pettifor, Joe Larragui and Tony Fahey. Our 10 minute lesson series where we give a brief overview of a policy topic. This is meant to be a useful introduction to an area that we hope our listeners will find useful. And our interview series, where we have a chat with experts on a range of policy areas. This is one of those. Today, I'm joined by Cloda Harris, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Government and Politics in UCC, an affiliate of the Environmental Research Institute, to talk about measuring well-being, deliberative democracy, and how to build forward better. I hope you enjoy it. So, Cloda, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation, Colette. So it's great to talk to you. So the 20th of March is International Day of Happiness. Um, and, you know, that that's obviously something that, that we could do a bit more of. Um, and recently, certainly, there's been a lot of talk about well-being. We saw with Budget 2021, there's this document circulating in relation to well-being indicators. We know, for example, in the likes of New Zealand, they've been very strong on well-being budgets. There was some talk that we might get a well-being budget last year. And while we did get kind of, you know, a, a more investment prone budget, um, we're still a, a little bit way off. In terms of the, the work that you do, what does well-being mean to you? Um, I suppose well-being, well-being to me um, means means many things. I suppose coming from where I come from um, as a political scientist, I tend to look at it through the lens of how we can be empowered to have agency in our in our lives and to influence the decisions that impact us. And I suppose I'm conscious that as a concept, well-being itself is very so there are many definitions and there are many de- disputed definitions of what it entails. And I think those indicators that you mentioned, like, for example, the OECD one, are really helpful because they break it down. They break down the, the fact that there are so many dimensions to well-being, whether it's our income and wealth, which obviously have a huge bearing on our actual physical and mental and emotional well-being. And then obviously other areas such as housing, our health, our, our social connections, our um, our environment, the you know the where we where we live and the quality of the air we breathe, the water we drink, and so forth. So I suppose my my sense is, and then within tied up within that also as well this idea of I know the OECD call it civil engagement and other other kind of indices and frameworks phrase it differently. But I suppose where I come from it myself, and I think one of the things that's really been highlighted or kind of um highly yeah, highlighted in this recent COVID-19 pandemic is it's this sense that we are we're all we're all humans we are all interconnected and I suppose we share a common humanity and a common fragility and this idea that we're all so interdependent but we're not just interdependent on on one another, but also so dependent on our planet, so on, on nature, on mother nature. And, and also on, on non-human nature. So I suppose for me, there are many dimensions to well-being. And when I think of it myself, and I think of it not just in terms of providing, you know, a, a kind of a, a 
decent, obviously, standard of living and I suppose how we determine our life satisfaction with life, but also our potential to flourish as humans, but flourish in a way that's not at a cost to to other humans, but also not at a cost to our to our planet and on all the other species, um, I suppose, upon it. And um, more recently in my work, I've become more and more interested about how we can look to the future, um, both in our politics, our policy making, and and also how we bring the future into the room in decision making. So um, yeah, I, I could talk for a lot on on that, and I'm happy to tease out any of those ideas further. Yeah, great, great. Um, because certainly, you know, we've been working towards a, a new social contract for quite some time. And last year we published our, our policy briefing, which contained over 80 recommendations under these five pillars. So the first one would be a, a vibrant economy. The second one is in relation to decent services and infrastructure. The third one is just taxation. The fourth is good governance. And then the fifth is sustainability. And like that, you know, our vision for sustainability goes beyond environment, goes beyond the here and now, but into the future. So it's not just this generation, it's it's how we interact, how our relationships with future generations, our relationships with the environment, our relationships with the institutions, um, and how all of that must kind of be sustainably built. In terms of, of your current work in relation to sustainability and human development, how does all of that and, and well-being relate. Um, thanks. Forgive me now. I, I coughed when you were speaking. Um, so, uh, yes, um, I suppose. Yes, I really enjoyed. Actually, I, I had a chance to read um, your your publication, the Building the New Social Contract Report. Um, it's very comprehensive, and I liked the fact that it linked in the con- you know that idea of a vibrant economy and um, a just taxation with decent services and infrastructure with good governance and sustainability. And I suppose I locate myself in more so the good governance and sustainability kind of pillars in in it. But I've been very fortunate to be involved in a number of recent um, kind of projects um, and both of which are in transdisciplinary projects. And one of them is a project that's kind of run through uh, UCC's Marai Research Centre, and that's the Deep Institutional Innovation for Sustainability and Human Development Project. And I suppose where we're coming from with that project, um, and it's it's relatively young now, it's only about six months in the um, kind of up and running. And where we are with that is, I suppose, we kind of come from the premise that we know that modern democracies are facing many crises, such as what you've touched upon there, um, Khaled, like climate change, the environmental degradation, overconsumption, um, kind of unsustainable levels of inequality and social injustice, which have led to kind of the potential, have led to social um, unrest. We've seen the emergence of the Black Lives Matters movement, um, again, highlighted by kind of deep racial systemic injustices. And um, we're kind of saying that that right now, um, we kind of note what we kind of take note of what Johan Schott and Laura Klanger have said we are in an era of deep transition and we're saying right we're in this era of deep transition it's we're seeing that where we what we have been doing has not been really 
able to deal with these crises and, and you can add on to those crises that are mentioned, the global COVID-19 pandemic as well. And it seems that the systems that we have depended upon for so long to service those social institutions, as we call them, so kind of politics, economics, the church, higher education, technology, um, you know, again, social institutions around gender and care, how they're structured in that regard. I suppose they've, they're failing to address these modern challenges on where we come from then in that project, we're saying that it's time for us to reimagine these institutions, to reimagine how we, I suppose, how we, how we live in some ways, how we conduct our our, our economy and how we practice our politics and, and what that looks like. And I was very taken actually last week, I was fortunate to chair a session for the ERI in Cork, so that's the Environmental Research Institute, had a webinar um, at which Professor Padder Kirby from UL was presenting and he, was, he made a really interesting presentation that came from his recent book and the presentation was called Beyond Capitalism, Mapping an Eco-Social Future. So it kind of touched upon a lot of the things that you've mentioned there, Colette, in the, in the introduction to that question and links very closely to the work we're doing with this DIIS project as well, where he says, you know, that um, again, recognising that our current systems have, I suppose, that we, that we are in crisis, that we are dealing with all these crises, and it would seem that our current political models of political economy and indeed our political institutions, because they can be quite, what's the word that Graham Smith has used in his recent work, that idea of democratic myopia that we tend to, that our political institutions as they're currently constructed um, work to short-term goals that are determined by electoral cycles. So that this idea that we need to kind of become more critical of what is of the status quo. And we see that happening with various work from the OECD and elsewhere. So um, move beyond this idea of maybe problem solving approaches and technical approaches to grand challenges like, for example, climate change and global injustice and social injustice indeed on our, you know, in, in our, on our own doorstep in our own country and become more critical about where we are, like what of the systems recognizing what are the systems that we currently have, where where do they need, I suppose, not throw them all out, but where do they need improving and how how can they be improved? And I suppose asking how these structures arose when they arose and how can we change them in a way that permits human flourishing that permits and I say human flourishing in the sense that allows us to develop our potential in a way that is other regarding that is future regarding and that is also based on on fact so you know not not dismissing evidence and not dismissing scientific expertise and and other forms of expertise and I suppose this is where we are at this time is we have now been presented with an opportunity to look at where we are, how we've gotten here and how we can maybe reimagine 
certain practices, certain social institutions that have served us to a point, but now need to be reconsidered. And rather than taking just maybe a a piecemeal, technical or indeed an overtly problem solving approach, which tends to kind of work from assumptions that are based in kind of neoliberal doctrine to move beyond that. And what I know uh, Professor Kirby, what Pater Kirby mentions in his work is very much drawing on eco-socialism and on that that donut model of economics where you nest where you where where ecology and society are nested within each other um so the so that society and the economy excuse me are nested within the kind of ecological environment and so I suppose it's we see we see how creative we are as humans our ingenuity and our ability to move quickly to a common good at a global level is evident in how the vaccines have been developed so quickly and so many of them have been developed so quickly so it is within our capabilities it just requires us to to challenge to critique and as I said reimagine and reimagine really and I thought this was very interesting from the work you've been doing as well um, Colette with the PPNs at the local level reimagining from the local level upwards you know yes you know there are big ideas that are coming from thought leaders and experts and academics, but we also need to make sure we capture the lived experience and diverse forms of expertise to ensure that that, that local knowledge, local customs, local, yeah, I suppose, yeah, local knowledge really, and the lived experience is also brought to bear in how we reimagine the world that we wish to live in. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned there in relation to kind of the, the big ideas around, you know, the ecological model and, and what needs to happen in relation to, to things like, you know, the, the environment and the, the catastrophe that is, um, you know, climate chaos and, and, and climate change, and particularly in terms of, of how it impacts different societies very differently. So, you know, to a certain degree, wealthier nations are protected um whereas as those in you know developing or what used to be called third world nations um are suffering severe consequences notwithstanding that they had a a lower level of input into the causes and i i noted that the the un in their human development report recently i think was last year they refer to this notion and i may not get this this pronunciation right and the Anthropocene where we're entering into this kind of new era where the challenges that we face can actually be delivered on or can be that can be um, answered by our own choices that it's really that the way we're shaping our societies the way we're shaping our world is going to have a much more significant impact um, in terms of, again, and you, and you mentioned this, that, that project in relation to institutional innovation, you know, like how can we get those big changes to happen? How can we look at our political structures, for example, and, and you know, produce the changes that we need so that it isn't just a very short term cyclical kind of goal orientated approach, that it isn't just looking to the, the next five years, it's actually looking to a much more forward-thinking, sustainable approach. Yep, that's that's a multi-million-dollar question, Colette. And I suppose there are many ways. And I know I I I I agree. Um, how, you know, it's it's an important question. 
Um, and there, I suppose what we have seen is number one, most, you know, I think people are more and more aware of the the threat that we are facing with with climate change. I think there's been more discussion around that in the last five years or so than 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 previously, and even in the last I know now in the last twelve months, things we've been very naturally preoccupied with the pandemic. But even at that, there's been a lot of discussion around the lessons that we have learned from the pandemic that could apply to how we tackle climate change. But also, there's kind of growing recognition. And I know that there's no definitive scientific answer on this, so this comes with a caveat, but it would seem that actions on our part that are linked to kind of consumption and growth models have led to us kind of moving into parts of the world, you know, kind of destroying the nature on our doorstep in ways that are costing us and that potentially have contributed. And, and again, I know there's there's more evidence, more research needs to be done on this. And, and perhaps if the evidence is already out there, then I'm, I'm, I'm not aware of it. So as I said, it comes with a caveat on my part, but like it's as we kind of, as we lose our elements of our biodiversity, as we make those encroachments into nature and other species, it is coming at a cost to us as humans too. And I think we're beginning to realise that fragility that we have, no matter where we live on the planet, in terms of a virus is a virus that will attack us all. Now, absolutely, we have not been all in this. We have not been together in this, whether it is in Ireland because of the various uh, systemic inequalities um, or social injustices or across globally, as you've mentioned, you know, the global south and other parts of the world where there haven't been perhaps the same developments in their health services and their health systems to support them or their even availability of sanitation that would help prevent the spread of this dreadful virus. So um, I suppose what, what we can see is that interdependence and that fragility. In terms of coming back to political systems, I think there's been a lot happening um, globally again in different parts of the world around participatory movements, participatory projects, participatory innovations and deliberative ones as well. And I think those processes are, are important and they take different I suppose they take different forms in different places. And some of them are not, you know, some of the ones that we are inclined to see as innovations and new are not really that new. If you look at participatory budgeting, that has been in existence since the 1980s, which to me only seems like yesterday. But if I spoke to one of my students, you know, they haven't been born. They, that, that's nearly 20 years before some of them were born. So um, so I think there's a lot to be learned around different forms of engagement, different forms of engagement that empower communities to come together, that empower individuals to come together. This idea as well of us becoming more critical of of, I suppose, critical of, I'm going to say dominant discourses, which obviously, you know, it's, it's quite an academic term or dominant paradigms, but also just more critical of, of you know, um, why, why does growth have to hinge upon constant consumption? I suppose more critical maybe in our understanding of, 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 the media and that has also presented challenges in terms of particularly with social media and echo chambers and so forth. But I do think 
that um, there's a growing, number one, understanding of um, how we are as, as a species, as humans more interconnected and that we share a common fragility, but that naturally we're not all in this together. Some have had an easier ride than others by virtue of their birth. Um, secondly, a growing sense, and I think again, this is very clear for anybody who lives um, in, in rural areas, whether that's in Ireland or Mozambique or elsewhere, a growing sense of the impact of global climate change and an awareness that, you know, things have changed and the, the threats that that brings with it. And I think what we're beginning to see is, you know, again, even with social movements, social movements happening, like, for example, the climate protests and the rise of Extinction Rebellion, et cetera, pressure being put from outside the system on more traditional forms of politics to respond to the climate emergency. Now, whether that is happening as quickly as some might say is required and whether those decisions that are coming are all that is needed is another kettle of fish. But I think it's important nonetheless that pressure is brought to bear. And I suppose myself, myself in my own work, I see a role for many forms of conversations and engagement around, particularly around climate change, but in many of the topics here. So um, I know a piece of work that I did recently with Dr. Ian Hughes, who's also from UCC, where we talk about, you know, the need for maybe a national conversation around what we mean by democracy. Like what are the values that are important to us as a society that should underpin our democratic politics and that that conversation should take place in many localities, whether it's through citizens' assemblies, through, for example, local authorities, through PPNs, through social other forms of social dialogue through uh, the, the on the floor of the doll. I, I suppose it requires us to go back and start thinking, you know, democracy, democracy is not fixed. It's not a fixed concept. It is ever changing and it's its capacity for self-renewal and self-criticism in many ways that is its greatest strength and perhaps will help us find common solutions but also our common approaches to the challenge and I mean you arguably you could say well a benign dictatorship could put into place all the measures that are required to tackle ch climate change but then what does that leave you with it leaves you in, with an illegitimate approach to dealing with a common challenge and a common problem in ways that's going to lead to disruption and social unrest. So I suppose my own sense is I'm a very adv I'm a strong advocate of bringing people, working with, working with people to co-produce, to co-own to co and to co-develop, um, I suppose, uh, visions and different ways of doing business, really. I yeah. hope that captures it. Yeah, it certainly does. Thank you. Um, you know, it's it's that concept of these things kind of happen slowly until you're forced into it. So, for example, mm -hmm. things that we would have advocated for back in the past in terms of healthcare, in terms of increased um, welfare payments, you know, in terms of of childcare supports, those things happened fairly rapidly in the onset of a pandemic. So it's, 
you know, there's learning even there in terms of, well, okay, where's the good in what we've seen? Yes, it was very expensive, but how do we, how do we turn that learning into a long-term approach to actually make positive changes? Um, and you, you referenced our work with the, the public participation networks, and we, we do a, a lot of work in relation to deliberative democracy. So going beyond this concept of representative democracy, you know, you, you vote and then you, you elect a representative and then they speak on your behalf forevermore for at least another five years, where there's more of a concept of, well, actually, from the ground up, people should have a stake they should have that ownership that you talk of um, in how their communities are shaped and how their societies are shaped, because then collectively we've got a much more should to result in a much more equitable society. Um, and I know that you've been heavily involved in projects around the Convention on the Constitution, the Citizens Assemblies, um, you know, where it's a, a much kind of broader dialogue, um, whereas we're looking at kind of in, with the PPNs, it's more about, you know, having representatives from within your number in terms of, of society. And we also look in terms of, of social dialogue um, at, a, at a national level so that all the partners can come together and, and thrash out these, these big issues. And it's not just about, you know, the financial end or the employer's end or the trade union's end, that it's actually, there's a role for society, there's a role for um, the economy, or sorry, there's a role for um, the environmental sector, there's a role for farmers, there's a role for everybody to have that kind of, of say. Um, but I suppose in, in, in terms of, you know, that level of participative democracy, what role can it really play in things like these bigger pictures in terms of sustainability, in terms of human development and, and well-being? Wow, <laughs> what a question. I suppose there are many ways. And, and I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting to hear um, to hear all, all, you know, your synopsis there is, it's, I really enjoyed listening to it because you're correct. I mean, there are many ways in which I suppose voices heard in Irish, pro, in, in Irish policy processes. Um, and I suppose the challenge is always to make sure that though, to ensure that there, you know, that, that no group is, is excluded um, and, you know, that can happen inadvertently. Um, uh, and, and also how, so how we, how we can reach those who might be hard to reach. And as Oliver Escobar and Ruth Lightbody have written and are therefore easily ignored. And I think it to be fair in the Irish context, the social dialogues that you've mentioned there and the fact that, you know, it is so inclusive in terms of that, the pillar that brings in the community and voluntary organisations, the social justice pillars, the environmental groups. I think that's all very, I think they're all things to be very, um, I suppose, positive towards. Um, and indeed, I suppose it's interesting to see maybe how some of those organisations themselves, even at an organisational level, captured the voices and the interests and the lived experiences of those whom they represent. Um, in terms of how that all builds into the how we deal with big issues, I think we have seen how, um, for example, with the citizens' assemblies and the convention on the constitution, how you know deliberative processes such as those, those particular 
forms of deliberative processes can deal with big questions. Now, they have dealt with where they, I suppose, have dealt most successfully have been with kind of big I'm going to call them moral or questions of morality. Um, that might not necessarily be the best term. It's the one that's coming to me right now. So forgive me if it's clumsy. Um, but such as, for example, marriage equality, which is very much a human rights issue. And likewise, um, the, the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. So the kind of the, the, the abortion referendum, again, putting it kind of um, more basically. Um, and the... They, they have worked very well there in terms of providing, taking a specific article in the constitution um, and examining it, you know, again, bringing people from different walks of life, different parts of Ireland um, together to gather information, talk to one another, listen, listen both to kind of expertise from a medical, philosophical, ethical sense, listen to stakeholders and also listen to those who have had a lived experience of those, those articles as they were in the constitution. And, you know, I suppose there's a degree you can see how that's played through the process, then the political process going through the, the relevant Oireachtas committee and then out to a, a public referendum. And, you know, that process, has, as, as I said, has worked well for those specific constitutional issues. They also, the Citizens' Assembly that ran from 2016 to 2018, also addressed the issue of climate change. But the way in, and, and, you know, and did so, to be honest, given the time that they were given, you know, they were only allocated two weekends or initially only one weekend. They asked for a second weekend and were, were received it in the space of two weekends to come up with the recommendations they came up with, which were quite radical, really, um, considering the way in which the question was framed. Um, you know, that there was quite an achievement. Achievement it was a remarkable achievement, really, for such a kind of a wide and complex and multifaceted issue. But arguably, I mean, that was very, it was very light in terms of what could be, not the recommendations, but what, you know, is a huge amount to ask of one group over the space of two weekends. And it fed back into the Interactus Committee where there was again an awful lot more work done by our, by our representatives, but also by the various groups that came and made submissions to it and who also gave uh, gave expert evidence to to it as well so I suppose that added another layer of of probity of accountability of a legitimacy of a voice um the, certainly they were it was an important way of I suppose putting a bit of public um pressure on the issue it wasn't the only form and as we know it wasn't initially even meant to be on the agenda for that citizens assembly so i suppose my sense is i have i'm somebody who sees great value in deliberative processes such as citizens assemblies but i don't see them as a panacea i don't see them as a replacement for you know social dialogue processes. I don't see them as a replacement for representative institutions of democracy, but where I do see they play a role is they bring other forms of expertise to bear. They bring in that I, they almost are a form of crowdsourcing knowledge uh, and giving additional justification to um, recommendations. So for example, they're a way of, I suppose, for those of us who are not in the room, who might not know as much about these policy areas, a way of us becoming more informed, but also knowing that there are people who are like us in their 
engaging with the experts, engaging with each other and developing um, for, for the country. And it would, you know, certainly the recommendations that have come from them have been supported in the referendums that have taken place by the wider wider population. So they have been in, in tune per se with the wider population. But that's not to say that they, you know, that there aren't potential issues with their design. And indeed, there's always the risk that such processes can be co-opted. And coming back to my point, they can be used to defend the status quo if they themselves aren't given enough freedom to challenge and criticize and maybe deviate from their agendas. Um, I so I, as I said, I see a role for them, but they're, you know, I think it would be wrong to expect them to be the solution to all, all that ails our modern democracies and the problems they face. I think you can have, for example, in a process, which they've done quite well in Iceland, where you can crowdsource around agenda topics as well. You can do that online or you can do it through other processes. I think where participatory and deliberative processes have a, a part to play is in terms of identifying agend agendas, putting pressure on the system to identify particular um, issues, but also then... Um, coming up with kind of that idea of co-producer, co-designed solutions. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I mean, I could talk for a long time on this, but I'm particularly, I, I really liked your summation as well at the beginning of that question, Colette, around what we have learned from this pandemic, around how, you know, the state still has an important part to play in provision of public services, because, and that's kind of, that's kind of rolling back on years of, uh, maybe more neoliberal politics, which saw the private sector as the best way of provi the provision of services and the best way of having efficient delivery of services. So I think it's interesting to see that we've seen a, a greater role for the state. Um, and I, I like particularly the ideas that have come forward from our president, our former president, Mary Robinson, where she's saying, you know, she's been challenging this idea of building back better, but calls on us to build forward better and to do so in a way that is equal and that is equal, that's just and sustainable from an environmental perspective. And I think whatever society looks like after this, I think more and more attention needs to be placed to look in from, from an equality perspective. I think we cannot risk losing kind of the gains that have been made over generations in terms of gender equality. And I was really struck by an excellent letter in yesterday's Irish Times. Now, um, the, the, the title of the letter was Women and the Silent Pandemic, and they had a number of co-authors the lead author that I could see was um, Orla O'Connor from the National Women's Council of Ireland but as I said there were many many um, uh, co-authors and it highlighted all the challenges that have been faced by women in this pandemic in terms of job losses because of the sectors in which they work their greater you know their greater exposure to COVID in some cases because so many of our frontline workers tend to be tend to be women whether it's in hospital settings or elsewhere um, the increased levels of domestic violence, the greater burden of childcare that's been placed and other care um, that's been placed on, on women in this pandemic. And, you know, in this letter, they call for an intersectional feminist approach to all government recovery plans. And I, I mean, I think that's that's a, that's an excellent point. Um, I think it's something that when we come to look at equality, um, that we cannot overlook 
the losses that have occurred from a gender perspective. And again, I like this idea of the intersectional feminist approach, because again, we as women are not a homogenous group. There are many dimensions to inequality, to inequality. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think I think there are many perspectives that need to be considered when as we as we build forward. I think there's a lot of knowledge there. I think there will be a lot of goodwill once we start to move forward, because I think as kind of lockdowns are lifted, as we can emerge, as we can realise what we have faced and grieve all we have lost and all those we have lost. And as we try and come to grips with the scars and there will be, I mean, you know, there will be scars um, from this. We can see that it has exacerbated inequalities that were already there. Um, so in inequalities around, you know, um, unemployment, around access to education, around educational attainment, um, so, so, so many, I, you know, I, I don't even know where to begin really fully. Um, so we need to be mindful of all of that, but also work collectively. A part of our call to dealing with the pandemic was to work collectively to kind of halt its progress. I suppose there's an onus on all of us to work collectively, but recognising that we're not all coming from the same place, the same starting place and so doing, to try and build, build forward and build forward better in a way that cannot just be a replication of the past. Yeah, I think that's, that's a beautifully put point, absolutely, um, in terms of, you know, that, that collective action. Um, because certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, there was that was very much the case. And it was all about community calls at a local level. It was all very much, you know, the green jersey, we're in it together. Um, and notwithstanding the fact that it was it was quite clear that not all of us were quite as in it together as, as others, um, you know, to to kind of paraphrase Animal Farm, but like it's, you know, it 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 very much was on the basis of a community, of a society. And as we have gone through it and as it continues, we're starting to see that narrative creep back a little bit. Um, you know, certainly towards late last year and into this year, we're now looking at, well, you know, it's individual responsibility and, you know, the, the fact that there are, are certain age groups that are affected more than others and the fact that you know, some people are being seen or being pointed out as as and some groups are being pointed out as being almost more responsible than others. And we're starting to lose that that narrative of it all being in together and and starting to roll back into a much more individual expression. And, you know, that the fact that we're starting to have those conversations around the economy and the recovery and debt payments and and all of that, there's a real risk and a real fear um, in terms of, of where that might lead us. But as we come through what is now hopefully that the final stages of the pandemic, how would you like to see society shaped if we are to have that, that just and sustainable forward thinking society? Um, yeah, that's that's really, again, another excellent question. And uh, so it's kind of a soul searching question. Um, I really, yeah, I agree with you. We have seen in the last, in the last while, and I suppose it's it's understandable as people become more anxious and more tired and just 
almost battle weary from this that you know this this idea of othering you know I'm I'm abiding by all the restrictions but others aren't and the others as you say might be a certain age group or might be a certain I don't know uh, live in a certain part of the city or whatever and that that's a worry Um, and I think social media has been a, a great outlet for venting people's frustrations with others and that I think I I hope I sincerely hope we move move beyond that because I think there's there's absolutely nothing to be achieved by that and there's also the risk as well that we become you know we we were quite we were so global in our outlook and I know we prided ourselves on our global economy which brought with it so many challenges for us and perhaps exacerbated our um, most recent financial crash um, but. We there's a concern, and it's not just an not just a concern I'd have for Ireland. It's a concern I'd have for Europe and outside of Europe too, worldwide. Is that we're going to become like fortresses? That we're all going to become so much more suspicious of those who are coming in. Even you know, I know that naturally there have been concerns around quarantine of people visiting from so-called hotspots where there may or may not be new variants of the virus. We need, to, I suppose, we need to take care that as we build back, that we don't become, I suppose, insular and more kind of isolated in our thinking and and isolated in our approaches to our fellow man, no matter what part of the world they come from. So I suppose for me, what I would like to see is our institutions moving just beyond looking at short-term growth or short-term gains and looking more to the medium to long-term. So when, because from what I understand, it's more so when than if, when we are faced with some crisis like this in the future, we are better positioned to deal with it, that we recognise the, we recognise work, we recognise the value of work and that we begin to recognise, you know, that we don't just pay lip service to all those who have worked on the front line, who have rolled up their sleeves, usually many of them in precarious positions or potentially or in low paid positions or indeed in public service positions where they have experienced, you know, at least a decade of pay cuts and, you know, pay people for the work that they do for the, you know, value, value work um, rather than, yeah, so to, to value our workers and particularly it's allowed us to reframe what we see as frontline and essential workers and recognise that actually when it came to it, these were the people on whom we relied and that many of them were actually um, in the state sector and that there, there's a pride to be had in working in a state sector as well, because I think that was one of the things we lost in the austerity debate, which was very much pitted for a while as private versus public. And I'm conscious that obviously I am myself a public sector employee, so maybe this might sound um, like somebody speaking with a vested interest. But I think what we it shows that um, that there's there's a value in the public, that there's a value in public goods, that there's a value in public services, that it's made us look differently at the concept of celebrity. It's made us look differently at maybe some of those very high profile 
bankers, et cetera, or those maybe who work in, you know, the highest levels of maybe the private sector or the financial sector and realize, you know, these, yes, these are people who provide services, but they're not frontline and arguably they're not necessarily essential. So I suppose it's made us refocus. It's made us look at everything through a different lens in terms of what we need as humans to survive. Um, in ter- I suppose, yeah, so that, that if I were to look in terms of building back or building forward, should I say, I think we have to be careful that we still maintain a global perspective in terms of being welcoming to others, to treating others well and to move away from an othering or a risk that could, you know, a form of small-minded nationalism, for want of a better phrase. Um, And also that we have um, more future-focused institutions. I think there's some very interesting developments elsewhere. For example, in Wales, they have an office, they have a commissioner and an office for future generations that kind of, again, is tied into their well-being act and that looks and that considers, you know, um, policies from a future perspective. Um, There are challenges with that, but at least it's shifting decisions beyond just the immediate short term. And also that idea, as I was saying, maybe, you know, maybe the time has come and I, I think no better person than our president to lead such a conversation in many ways. And he has been doing it over the course of his presidency to date and his previous presidency is kind of a national conversation about, you know, who we are, what we value and what we want and what we want for our country's place in the world. So to move just beyond you know, not, not just to look at kind of the national, but how we contribute. And again, you know, we do we do punch above our weight globally. And I think we could provide leadership there. But I think there's going to be a real need for clear leadership on on this to harness that collective dimension, but recognizing that there are many who will have been very badly. I suppose damaged, damage mightn't be a very fair word, but there are those whose lives will have been significantly changed by this pandemic and that this will have implications for their children and their children's children in terms of just systemic inequalities. So we need to be mindful of that to make sure that we don't leave any any of us behind. Yeah, again, a, another another really beautiful answer. And I think you know, when you talk about work and you talk about what we value, I mean, it might be, it might have come as a surprise to some of us to realise that we're actually not essential. And um, that, you know, it's it's people who are, are very often in low paid and precarious employment who have turned out to be the saviours of the hour, that the, the, the reason that we're getting to eat um, every week, the reason that, you know, um, that, that we can get our tests, that we can can actually function still as a society, even within the, the limits of the restrictions. And I think also in terms of, you know, reviewing that idea of work and that, that, that values conversation around, you know, work in particular, um, you referenced the, the letter to the Irish Times and there was also, you know, on, on International Women's Day, there was an interesting article in relation to um, the invisible job and how, you know, if there is a, a two income family, particularly once children come along or other caring responsibilities come along, um, there is a, there's a third job, there's a, another role to be played. And we need to, to think about how we value that because very often that role falls to, to women 
um, but also in terms of, you know, when we looked at things like the gender gap in terms of work and employment, um, you know, that there's, it, it's people who have experienced educational disadvantage who are the homemakers or who have a higher proportion of, of, of a, a, a homemaker, um, of female homemakers and who have a higher gender gap. So we need to look at, well, what does that mean in terms of society and how do we value that so that that can be preserved if, if that's what is 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 chosen um, and that it's not just done out of necessity or economic necessity or a lack of opportunity, but that it's actually undertaken with a, a real you know, proper estimation of its value and that there is policy put behind that to properly value that so that we don't see this, as we talked about before we started recording the podcast, this chasm between those who have and those who haven't, particularly in terms of the impact that it's going to have on, on future generations and, and the newer generations. You know, there's already that gap between those, you know, who are, are from wealthier backgrounds and those who are not. We're going to see that widen um, because of the pandemic. And we really don't, we need to, to have policies that address that and that can actually implement proper forward thinking measures to make sure that that, that gap doesn't become a chasm and that it does start to close. Um, and, and with that, you know, I, I just really want to thank you, Clodagh. You know, your time has been really much appreciated and your expertise. Um, have you any final thoughts or final words for us? Actually, yeah, no, and, and just as you were speaking, Colette, I fully agree with every word you have said. And I just think, yes, we need, you're absolutely correct. We need the policies and really we need to start, you know, really becoming much more strategic, you know, strategic in our investment too, if we're being future focused and if we wish to build forward better, because if we really need to invest in our in our health, but particularly our public health systems and our mental health systems, because they're, as I said, the ramifications, we're not going to know probably for another five, potentially 10 years, sadly, the, the full impact of this pandemic, particularly on younger people who obviously are going to be all going well, uh, our future adults. And we, you know, and it's, it seems to me that, yes, there everybody has gone through this in kind of a crisis mode and everybody has, to the best of their abilities, to the best of their abilities, people have done what they can to protect um, those they care for, um, often with little or no supports, and the, uh, you know, the the restrictions, particularly in the first lockdown, were very harsh for anybody who was even seeking support from within their own family if they needed it, to to work or to care or even just to provide that emotional support, financial support, and so forth. So, I think we're going to need serious investment in our health services and particularly mental health services. That it strikes me, and also in education, and I think that needs to start coming straight away at primary and second level there are real concerns that there's a cohort number of second levels I suppose second level students who may not actually return fully to school or those who will find it so challenging to to catch up on all that they have lost in terms of face-to-face teaching because for a variety of reasons they were not able to keep up 
when it moved online. We also see there's, you know, there are many, we have so many of our citizens who live in vulnerable situations and who are themselves vulnerable by, by virtue maybe of ability or perhaps um, abilities, etc. that they have, as you, as you mentioned there, the, there's a chasm opening up and we need to come in quickly and invest in services that try to make sure that chasm is narrowed as much as is possible. So I suppose they're my only parting words really is that when we, as we emerge from this and we will emerge from a thank you know, all going well, um, that we need to be mindful that instead of going straight back into a growth model and yes, of course, naturally it's important that we return people to employment. That's, that's, that's a given, but that we also focus on how we need to offer futures to those whose futures were put seriously on hold and hindered but by virtue of the actions that were taken in the last 12 months. Thank you so much, Claudia. Not at all. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I've learned an awful lot talking to you and um, I hope it was coherent. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. As always, if you have any suggestions or anything you'd like to hear about, please give us a shout at secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.